October 11th, 2023. Let's learn a Chelek Bet, of Moreh Nebuchim. It's appropriate for this week's parasha. It's always appropriate to learn from the Moreh, but this week's parasha specifically, Parashat Bereshit, of course, begins with creation of existence, creation of the world. And Harambam, starting here again, Chelek Bet, Perek Yod Gimal, and for the foreseeable future over here, some 18 or so Perakim, deals with Biri'ah. He talks about Biri'ah creation through the vantage point of uh, two sects of ancient philosophers, uh, vis- uh, you know, c- and contrasts them to the Torah. Then he analyzes it from several angles and concludes with a discussion of it from Mikra, from Pesukim, of what the Torah seems to portray to us. There are many memorable passages over the course of these some 18 Pirakim or so. Um, I don't plan on reading every single one of them, but I do hope to together read through uh, the significant portions so that we can get a larger and greater perspective of Harambam's take on creation. Now, before we even begin, it should be noted this sort of question, although once philosophically significant, is not really much of a debate in today's day and age. In other words, if you're not a strict adherent to you know, the creation story as described in the Torah, you're at the very least, I imagine, a scientific human being in this world who accepts that there was at some point a creation, be it the Big Bang or anything else, that brought forth existence as it is today. In other words, what Harambam is going to be contending with, as we'll discover in just a moment or two, is Aristotle and Plato and their sorts of visions and descriptions of a primordial existence, an existence that went all the way back, either at the same time as God's existence or in some way predates him. Again, hard to say those words and understand exactly what that means. But that sort of vision that there always was, in other words, matter always was, or the matter with its form as it appears today always was, not really something we contend with or need to contend with from a philosophical and certainly not scientific uh, dimension in today's day and age. Nobody, nobody makes such a claim any longer. It's a medieval view, although it was pretty strong until some less than 100 years ago in the scientific world. At the same time, so then, okay, before I go onward, you might say, so then the whole conversation is moved. And what's the significance of this conversation? He's going to be talking about those others, other opinions. In order to strengthen the vision of the Torah, this creation ex nihilo, uh, kind of giving you his punchline already, he'll reveal it to us at the onset. So why endeavor into this if he's dealing with old approaches that even scientists of today don't contend with? And I think nonetheless, it's, it'll, it'll emerge as quite clear there are philosophical notions and, and directions that he brings us in that are very significant, irrespective of, so to speak, what the other camp says scientifically today. Uh, so that's the uh, introduction. He does address those people who say, he believes that the world is eternal. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. But again, what I'm saying is, I don't think you really need to deal with that today. Yeah. I don't know, it's a, an, an eternal universe, an infinite universe, is not really a claim any longer. People who are scientifically minded will claim, will state, at some point, some many, many years ago, there was an explosion that brought forth what we have today. The claim is not made, it was always there. Right, so in other words, what he's contending with, what he's fighting, not really relevant, but philosophically, 
what we'll discover hopefully will be significant points nonetheless. So here's how he begins this conversation. Says Harambam, beginning here of Perik Yod Gimal. There'll be a little bit in this Perik that we'll skip, and I'll explain why. He says, the views of people with regards to meaning the eternal existence of the world, or meaning something new happened, something novel. It came to being. When I deal with people who accept a divine, accept a god, or the god, there are three views. At the end of the chapter, he'll say, I'm not even interested in talking about those who are scoffing at existence of God. I dealt with that separately. I don't need to deal with how they explain the existence as it's, it stands today. But he says there are three approaches for even God-believing people uh, with regards to how creation came about. He says, let me begin with the true approach. Now let me just be clear, this first chapter, Perik Yod Gimal, will not really, although we'll address at the end, it will not really get into the weeds of the matters over here. He's really just going to present the three approaches. At the end, when he addresses Aristotle, he reveals a bit, and I'd like to you know, pay attention to that and how he's kind of contending with that. Um, but really, this Perik Yod Gimal is just a presentation of the views. And then he goes systematically, dealing with them and the Torah view in turn. He says the existence of creation, according to anyone who believes and accepts Torah Moshe Rabbeinu, is that existence came about only after an absolute and, in, and entirely so, He'eder, He'eder, nothingness. A nothingness was, and in turn, something came about by means of God. He'll in a moment say, can't really talk, that it's called Beria Yeshme'ayim, creation ex nihilo. In a moment he'll say those words that I just said, that he wrote, are only an easy way for you and I to talk, you and me to talk. Uh, why is it an easy way for us to talk? Because ultimately speaking, we're saying, what was there before creation? Oh, before creation there was nothing. It's impossible to use words like that. Before creation, there wasn't the existence of time either will be his approach. And in turn, you can't say, what's before? There was no time. There's no before. That's an easy way of talking. And otherwise, we wouldn't be able to verbalize this. You can't talk about an existence of time before time existed. But we'll just say those words. He says, there was only God as existent with nothing else parallel and with him. Lo malach, no angels, velo galgal, no spheres, velo mashik betochad galgal, and certainly nothing that's inside those spheres of existence. Ulahan mikin, and afterward, again, he'll say those words are not perfect, but afterwards, hevili de misiut et kol hanim saim ha'ele kefishehem. In turn, God decided, for whatever reason, we'll call that rason habore, to bring to fruition existence as they are. Birsono ubehefso with his will and with his wanting. Lo midavar, he took nothing in order to craft. He brought forth, so to speak, the resources and in turn chiseled them as to as they are. There was no pre-existing matter. 
nor certainly was there any form. That's what I was referring to. He continues and he says, you should know time as well was created. Because Harambam, following Aristotle, as he made clear at the beginning of the second here of the Moreh, is of the view, is of the opinion that time is contingent on movement. Now, I'm not fully versed in the theory of relativity, but I am well aware that the theory of relativity of Einstein very much continues this sort of ancient view. In other words, that time is determined to a large extent by movement. Says Harambam, if time is dependent upon movement, and movement can only be in existence through the creation, it means that time as well only came about once God brought forth creation. So those are the words of Harambam. That's the principle, that's the clear notion that he sets forth for us, that anyone who believes in the Torah, believes in turn in what we call biriat yesh me'ayin. What he then talks about in these next two paragraphs, well, first and foremost, he mentions how, you know, this, this notion of talking about before creation and after creation is just the wrong way of speaking, but we have no other way of referring to it. Then he has a little bit more of this conversation with regards to a proper orientation of time so that you don't get thrown off in philosophical conversations. But not really our issue in this context. On page 298 on the next side, in the third paragraph, he continues this conversation for our purposes. It says, Harambam, According to our approach, our opinion, the true approach is, Again, you can't pinpoint a time when God was before creation because time is the wrong word. Time only exists, again, difficult to wrap your head around this other than saying I accept it, only exists with creation. Now, without skipping further, the next paragraph says, Harambam, Zoti ahata de'ot v'hi lelo safek ikar torat Moshe Rabbeinu alav hashalom. This is the first approach with regards to creation. Again, there was nothing and brought into existence everything, anything and everything, is God. Sheni la'ikar ha'yehud. He says this is second in terms of significance to Yehud Hashem to the oneness, to the unity of God. That's interesting, he's ranking the importance, but again, he's saying there is the unity, the oneness of God, and then you need to accept and understand that afterwards is God's creation of the world, of existence, something from nothing. The unity of God. We haven't addressed that. Effective oneness, the way that I think translate usually is unity, how it all comes together in him. Oneness is, is, is just as good for our purposes now. Don't think anything else. Now there's interesting uh, you know, discussions that Harambam will have later on. I'm only planting the seed from now. When he addresses Plato, he'll tell us about Plato's approach soon. But when he addresses Plato's approach later on, he'll make clear that both philosophically and certainly textually, Plato's approach is 
not so quote-unquote problematic to a believer in Torah and in God. It's Aristotle that he says, that's kefirah, and that's absolutely wrong. Plato, whom we'll address, again, he'll be less problematic in terms of his vision of it. As a matter of fact, he'll quote famously from Pirkei Derbiliezer Midrash, which seems to support such a notion, and he'll say, but nonetheless, we reject it. It's interesting then, again, I'm just seeding now, that he writes very forcefully, don't think anything other than I've presented. In truth, along the same line of that seeding, of you know, just raising questions before we even get into it, is the fact that Harambam famously has an introduction to Perek Heilek. Perek Heilek is the last chapter in Masechet Sanhedrin. He wrote an introduction. In the introduction, famously, he counts 13 principles of faith. The fourth of those principles, well, you have it on the paper in front of you, is Hakadmut, is how God precedes all. Like Kedem, Meona Elohe Kedem, right? Kadmut. And in that Ikar, the last line of it, and I'll read it to you for a moment, on the second line here in source number five, it says, Vida, and no, the greatest principle of the Torah of God, it's that the world, it was um, novel, was something that came about. God brought it forth, created it, after absolute nothingness. Now, why do I say this is relevant? Well, of course, that's what he's talking about. The interesting part here is, that, that sentence, in the original writing of Harambam, the first time he wrote his Ikarim, is mm-hmm. absent. 20 years later, he amended it. He added in this sentence. That's interesting. It's almost, I mean, we'll have to address it again and come back to what's his true feeling, what's his approach to Plato, who we don't even know yet. I'm just telling you, calling purposefully attention to the line that he says, don't think anything else. And the 20 years after writing these Yisodot, these Ikarim, he writes that as well. This is an absolute principle. All right, but let's kind of get there and not even address that issue today. But you should know it's quite an issue to address. We'll Conti- to the Mikra, I guess, yeah, time. later, much later, much later, but maybe we'll do yes, it sooner than later. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And don't forget, and Abe's to a certain extent, I think, alluding to the fact that if you look at Mikra, that's right, just the first several psukim of the Torah, it's anything but clear, B'riya Yeshma'in. Harambam will make clear, as a matter of fact, B'riya Yeshma'in is tradition. He'll say, I'm sorry to tell you from now, you can't prove it from the Torah. He'll say, you can't prove otherwise, but you can't prove it from the Torah. Abi in turn says, well, what's it doing in Moreh Nebuchim? Interesting question, which is to explain Mikra, unless he's trying to dispel the notion that you should read it otherwise. In other words, he'll say that it's equivocal, but this is how you should accept it, instead of saying it's perforce saying that it was existent before him. Okay, anyway, says Arambam, Abraham Avinu Alav HaShalom, in the bottom paragraph, right, on page 298, he says, Abraham is the one who began to publicize this approach. He doesn't say discover this approach. He says publicize this approach. That's interesting. And how did Abraham discover it? Iyun his analysis, his research, his noticing. 
ולכן, אז for that reason, קרא בשם אדוני אל עולם. His understanding of those words, God who is the kel, the el, the power, the force, the something, translated accordingly, olam is, so to speak, God preceded the world. That's how he reads those words. In fact, Harambam has a certain, uh, for a certain interest in the, that description of God, as the footnote in the bottom here points out that um, those words are what precede each of the three sections of More Nebuchim. So in other words, if you look at the beginning of each section, Harambam begins with those words, with the, I'll show you the first page, Beshem Hashem Kel Olam. Harambam's very particular. Now he's telling you, which is an interesting thing, I mean, he was, in my opinion, an expert writer. It's well known that he was very careful about everything he wrote in terms of systematically putting it down and then embedding it with secrets later on and so forth. The fact that he starts off each one of his sections in that fashion, and over here he tells you, here's a significance to those words. Those words denote the fact that God preceded all, so to speak. Okay, he says, Abraham expressed this approach, this thought, explicitly when he said, when he said that God created might be the easiest translation in this context to the word kone, because another interpretation would be that he controls, which won't prove anything per se. The interesting thing, of course, about these words are that Avraham may have not been the first one to say these words, right? In other words, Malkitzedek may have been the first one to say these words, at least as the Torah presents it to us, which is interesting in and of itself. But again, says Harambam, Avraham's uh, significant, unique aspect is that he was Mefarsim. He publicized this approach, which he independently discovered. Right, that's the first approach. For our purposes, you know, not that complicated in terms of articulating, neither will the other approaches be. We'll be able to say them pretty succinctly and clearly. First approach is, a creation of something from nothing. That's it. Where do you have it in the Torah? Ironically, he doesn't point to any pasuk in Bereshit, not that he doesn't say in Bereshit, parashat Bereshit, not that he says that it's one way or another, he just says, Avraham Avinu is the one who sets it forth, and anyone who believes in the Torah of Moshe will accept such an approach. All right, Hadeah Hashinia, the second approach. What's that? Next book. Yeah, all right, well, gotta move. I mean, listen, we got 18 chapters over here, may as well move. Hadeah Hashinia, the second view um, with regards to Biriah. This is for all intents and purposes, everyone we hear about and we saw their words from the philosophical camp. It is inconceivable, impossible, and the thought could not ever rise to a rational person's mind that God brought something from nothing. Similarly, from their empirical evidence, from experimentation in this world, you can't take something and turn it into nothing. In other words, this is a very cogent approach to existence or to creation. Look at the world around you. Realize that you can't create something from nothing. You can't take something and diminish it to nothing. You can work with what you have. As a result, they in turn will say, 
Well, let's see what they'll in turn say. Kavarati, my intention in explaining their approach, says Halambam, you can't find something which is made out of mass and matter, which came about without that mass and matter. And you can't take something that's made out of mass or mass and matter, and it loses that entirely. According to these philosophers, this approach, which again, he'll in a moment introduce us initially to Plato along these lines, would say a lot that you and I would say as well, I imagine. We would say that God can't make a square whose slant is the same size, as the same length, as its side. It just can't be, right? By definition, a square slant is going to be longer than its side. We can't say that God could and would combine two opposites. No such thing. By definition, they're opposites. We're not per se in saying those things, arguing that God's deficient. We are saying this is reality. In turn, they say, look at the world around you. Realize that the world around you is such that something can't come from nothing. Can't in turn argue that God could bring something from nothing. Of, it's not the polar opposite well, it's yet. It's close. very close. Aristotle will be the polar opposite. Because what they're going to say, I guess it's, it's, it's certainly on the other side of the aisle, what they're going to say in this first of the two approaches that he's going to present is, well, God coexisted with matter, but the world as you and I know it was from him. He coexisted with the raw matter, the everything that makes up what everything is, the uh, periodic uh, table of elements. He coexisted always, and in turn he brought about. But yes, he didn't create any of those elements. They were just with him. He couldn't. Oh, you say that's deficient? They would argue it's not deficient. It's just as deficient as he can't combine two opposites. It's just as deficient as he can't get a body. It's just as deficient as he can't create a parallel. Those are all his examples. That will be this approach. From their words, the next paragraph, it's clear that they would say, the same way that you and I would probably agree, I imagine, that God is not deficient. He's not imperfect because he can't create any of the impossibilities. That's just the nature that he created. Because after all, the impossibilities have a certain nature which is set in place. It's unchangeable because it just is. In turn, you would say, he argues, they argue, that God is not deficient uh, with regard to the reality that he can't bring forth something from nothing. That's no different than any other impossibility. Here's the key line in Plato. They believe, the Platonic view is, 
there was and is a pre-existent primordial, which means before creation, just matter. That's homer kol shehu. Matter, energy, whatever it is. What's that? He's coexistent. Keshem sheha eloa kadum. Both God and matter are prior. 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 Prior to what? Prior to what we have now. I mean, what what other word do you want to use for this, right? It's kadum. It's prior to creation as we know it. But it just is. Where did it come about from? Obviously, you can't really ask such a question. You know, it's the same question as where did God come about from, right? He says the matter is to God like, It's like uh, for a potter, a person who has clay. Uh, the, the clay for the potter, or uh, who's making pots, or the barzel for the napach, or for a uh, blacksmith, it's the uh, it's the uh, the yeah. copper, the bronze, whatever. Who bore bahomer God has with his own rason whatever his will is to do with that matter what he'd like. Uh, as we know this world, he crafted heavens and earth. And at other times, God could, would, should, whatever, uh, craft something else from it. So in the creation, as you and I know it, and I might even be alluding to, you know, like a midrash, that there were other existences with this line, you know, kind of alluding to the fact that, what does that mean? It means that God did not and does not need to have this world as we have it. It's an anti-Aristotelian view, as we'll see in a moment. But this Platonic view is he could do with matter what he wants, but he can't and won't create matter. The approach in turn of this, this view is that the heavens come about and in turn might go away. God could create heavens and destroy heavens. He can't create, so to speak, the fabric of the heavens, the energy, the gases, whatever word you want to use, the energy of existence. He can't do away with that. That's kadum like him. What he can do is do away with it. Heavens and earth are not a necessary existence. That's God's doing. That's it. Again, as, as A.B. mentioned earlier, when you read the Torah, certainly the way I was taught as a child, that there was tohu vavohu, and God makes from that shamayim va'aretz, it sounds a whole lot like Plato. There was tohu vavohu, chaos of some sort, and God created, because he was there, and is there, and was there, and so forth, he created heavens and earth. He can bring it back to tohu vavohu, but he can't, according to this approach, do away with it. It's, it certainly is to, it certainly is to a certain extent limiting God. However, their view is it's not a limit, it's just as much a limitation as God can create a parallel being like himself. God can give himself a body. You wouldn't call those limitations per se. Maybe you call them limitations, but not deficiencies. That's why I was using that word earlier. It's true, it's not it's not but it's not per se inappropriate with regards to speaking about God and him having infinite powers, quote unquote. 
That's what he writes. Our hazim azot, those who have such an approach, ma'aminin believe shav shamei mitavim vekalim that the heavens could be created and destroyed. Ela she'enhem mitavim milodavar. That's the critical line that distinguishes them from Torah Moshe Rabbeinu, as he described it. They don't and won't accept that God created from nothing. Ve'enhem kalim elodavar, and he can't in turn destroy to nothingness. And rather, the same way that living organisms, come about from some pre-existent matter, and in turn disintegrate after their life to some other matter. Their existence, their creation and destruction, is just like anything else. You know, again, I mentioned, read the Pesukim in Bereshit, Perek Aleph, it's hard to make, to make a major argument, against. if not impossible, against this. Mm-hmm. Even the description in, in the beginning of Bereshit, one of the two, and the more famous one, of the creation of human beings from the dust of the earth, it's not a something from nothing, according to that rendition in the Torah, right? Words, much of what exists, as the Torah tells us, is God's doing, taking and splitting, taking and crafting. That's not to argue Harambam will tell us that he didn't bring about the initial matter, but we don't have a line in the Torah that explicitly says so. That's the line, that's the, the Benese Azot, this is like anything else. People have this view break into different sects. There are different views, different uh, uh, nuances with regards to approach to this matter. I'm not listing all of them here. But the major and fundamental principle of this group, it's what I set forth for you. This was the approach of Plato. This is Aristotle quotes in the name of, of, of Plato, that the heavens, that the sky and heavens can and did come into existence and can no longer be existent. Again, that's what Aristotle will disagree with. But make certain, says Harambam, that you realize he doesn't share our belief. This is there are those who are not careful in the Jewish Torah approach to this matter and assume we have the same approach as Plato. Not so. It's not so. We are distinguished, different than him, in we believe in creation, something from nothing. He believes creation, something from something. There was creation from God, is creation from God, is destruction from God, something from something. He doesn't dismiss this in his usual dismissive flourishing. That's correct. That is correct. The strongest, at least in this chapter that we found, as Abi's pointing out, is that he says, Don't think about anything else. He then presents Plato and he doesn't say he's off. He says, People believe we have the same belief. They're wrong. He doesn't say this is nonsense. He doesn't call it uh, a picosut. None of that sort, which he will very clearly do with Aristotle. That's, that's absolutely correct. And remember, 
he, philosophically speaking and textually speaking, it's hard to so dismissively do away with it. The third approach, the third view. That's the Aristotelian view. Those who follow him and those who explain his books. Aristo dogel he too is walking along the lines of the last approach. Something can come into existence from nothing. However, he goes further, or he veers off and says, heavens can't be destroyed nor created. The existence as we know it needed to be eternal as well. It can't be that there was a time or will be a time of, quote, tohu vavohu. No, sir. Shamaim and Aretz are and will be. There's no disintegration. There's no fruition. Time existed? It's a wonderful question. It means that according to Aristotle, time always was, right? And also if you follow the logic through, time always was according to Aristotle. question, by the way, will be according to Plato as well, but okay, yes, absolutely. Tamsita ato binyan zehi Zot. He says, the, if, if we're to put together the approach of Aristotle, it goes like this. He claims that that which exists entirely, as it is, obviously not with the buildings and cars and clothing, but with regards to the broad contours of existence, heavens and earth and so forth, and the major elements, uh, what, what, what does he say? It was and will always be as such. And the heavens will never cease to be as they are. There you go, A.B. explicitly. Movement and time. Eternally present. Lo mitavim kalim. They do not come about and they do not stop. Of course, Yehoshua's Shemesh Begiv'on Deom, V'yarech Be'emek Ayalon is the hardest for Aristotle to accept. You're talking about heaven, spherical, stopping. No such thing in an Aristotelian view. The heavens are eternal without ever changing. God cannot change. I'm not denying God, says Aristotle. I'm just telling you, God can't play with that. He says, listen, the elements as they are cannot and will not go away. I will change what they look like, but we won't and cannot do away with them nor bring them about, and God couldn't either. It'll look different, it'll sometimes strip down one way and dress up another way. The order of above and below, in other words, here and in the heavens, won't at any point stop or change. There won't be something new and novel that's not in its embedded nature. That's what I was referring to earlier. You'll never have a miracle like Yehoshua. No such thing. Of course, Harambam, who's very steadfast to an Aristotelian view and vision of existence as well, maybe not creation, will have difficulty with Yehoshua's miracle as well. 
he'll try to diminish from the way we envision it because of his steadfast adherence to an Aristotelian general perspective. So Sorry. is he saying also that matter existed? Or is it heaven, yes. earth, time? Matter and, and form. And form. Not houses, but form, heaven and earth. In other words, for Plato, it was something. Okay, I don't know, you know, it was, uh, we call it energy usually, you know, it was hyal, it was whatever. For Aristotle, it was heavens and earth. It was certainly heavens. They were there and cannot go away. We're not ever not there. He says, even if he didn't say it in these words, in his opinion, the conclusion is it's impossible it's not conceivable. God can't change a will, can't have a new rason. Uh, uh, His will cannot and will not be changed. In other words, miracles, changes to nature, are impossible, according to Aristotle. Yes, creation as we know it, the world as we know it was God. He was involved. He is. But that's not to say that there was nothingness. Absolutely not. This is the part I want to focus on for the duration of our class, the rest of the class. And just as it's impossible, says Harambam, and he's not disagreeing with this line, just the, the three bottom lines here. He says, and just like it's impossible that God will change his essence, can sover Aristo, so to Aristotle believes, Shemin Hanimna, God's essence can't be changed, so too his will won't ever change. God is so static because of his essence which in turn means that his will is static as well. God won't change, and if he uh, won't change, he in turn can't change existence as it is. That is the, that's the line here in Harambam, according to Aristotle. Mikan mitayev, it in turn emerges as a, as a perforce, shanim kulo, kefishu achshav, existence as it appears now, so to it was always, and so to it will be for eternity. Those are Adam Baum's words with regards to these three approaches. As I said, I want to pay attention just for the last several minutes of this class to these final words of Aristotle, and again, of Haram Bam in Aristotle. Again, as I mentioned, Haram Bam's last two paragraphs over here really say, I'm not paying attention to those far-off heretical groups who don't accept God's existence and how they envision creation, says that's not what I need to spend my time on. I'm assuming you have, uh, you have a certain uh, working uh, uh, assumption that we're dealing with God and we're reading the words of the Torah and so forth. Well, that being the case, I would just, so again, this notion that God in his perfect being won't change is not far off from Harambam's own view. Now, again, that, that's a difficult thing to wrap our head around, and I won't entirely today or ever, because what does that mean in terms of relationship with God? What does that mean with regards to prayer and so forth? Those are very difficult questions to grapple with when you say God is static and unchanging, immovable, 
But nonetheless, it's important to address it from Harambam's perspective for the moment. Harambam, for example, in the first two sources, which reflect the same thing, one in his Mishneh Torah, and at the end of Perek Alf of Hilchot Yisodeh HaTorah, and the second one from earlier in the Moreh, Helek Alf Perek Avav, Harambam has the following words. He's in the midst in both of these conversations of talking about how God has no bodily functions. God is in no way similar to human beings. In that context, says Harambam, since this is so, he says, in turn, anything that describes God in any way, shape, or form that's in some way relatable to me and you, it's all a mashal, it's all a parable, just so you and I can speak about it. God is not happy. God is not sitting and laughing. God is not angered. About all of such notions and mentions about God, that's the Torah speaking like human beings. So to the Navi says, are they making me angry? Oh, it's good. Maharam Bam says, God doesn't get angered. You and I understand it as anger. You and I perceive a reaction in nature in that way. It's not because God changed. This is the Navi says, I am God. I have not changed. Underline that line. That's the line. If you were to tell me sometimes God's angry and sometimes he's happy, well, then he would be changing. Only the lowly being creatures like me and you who walk on dirt, who live a corporeal way of you know, material life. But for us, we change. For you and me, we sometimes get angry and sometimes happy and we need to move and go another place in order to get something or derive some sort of benefit from one thing or another. God is above all that. Those are his words. In the More, interestingly, Harambam writes, as I mentioned, he says, listen, people are very comfortable saying God doesn't eat and drink. People are not so comfortable saying, or they don't realize that it's the same um, issue with regards to God changes. God doesn't change. His will never changes. His passion, his view, his perspective, his approach, none of that actually changes. We can talk about it like that. We can understand it like human beings. But to accept God's <coughs> perfect state of being is to accept that notion as well. Again, <coughs> ironically, this notion, which Harambam is forceful about, is what underbellies Aristotle's approach, right? Aristotle says, the same way that God, in his utter perfection, cannot change, well, in turn, you can't argue that he caused a change, right? If there was creation, that means at some point, some juncture, there was a change. Something that wasn't came into existence. Can't talk about that like can't talk like that about God. Right? In other words, they're contingent one upon the other is the Aristotelian vision. Harambam is caught a bit in a philosophical bind on this. To argue that God did create poses a philosophical problem with regards to our understanding and acceptance of God's perfection. If God is perfect, well, his vision is, then he's static, he doesn't change. If he doesn't change, then he wouldn't bring about creation. 
That's the problem. That's the problem. That's the quagmire the, the, that, that Harambam will get stuck in. And he'll give us a mashal to get out of it later on. But that's what I'm telling you. In terms of a, a, a Maimanidi and a Harambam philosophy, you know, you open it up and you say, of course we accept, accept creation ex nihilo. Of course it's b'riyayesh me'ayin. Of course anyone who says differently is ridiculous. Not so. Not so. If we worked backwards over here, if I started the class with these two statements, I'd kind of walk you into this corner of saying, well, then God couldn't have caused creation. But he told us, Hanumban, that our tradition is that he did. Well, that's the, quali- that's the philosophical quandary that we're going to get stuck with. I'll tell you in truth, I, I believe I saw this in the name of Abar Benel, but it rose to my mind just independently today as I was thinking about this. Sources three and four are famous midrashim. The midrashim that invite the question as to why are the rabbis saying this? With this sort of perspective in mind, we might suggest that the rabbis are dealing with potentially this sort of difficulty as well. On the one hand, we're not going to take away from the miracles in God's existence and his arsenal. On the other hand, miracles argue that God changes. Well, so then how do you qualify those two? You get a little stuck. So what the rabbis say is, well, something that gets out of it technically, but doesn't leave us with much understanding, but you'll see what they say. For example, going to four before three. Four is, Asara Shabbat ben No, but why do the rabbis say that? Ten things were created, say the rabbis, on the eve before creation, or on the eve of Shabbat before crea- uh, during creation. What are they? All many of the miracles, pihaaretz, the mouth of the ground which swallowed uh, Korah, pihaaton, uh, the mouth of Bilam, hakeshet, haman, hamate, and so forth. What are the rabbis saying in this? They're saying, on the one hand, God didn't change. On the other hand, He did create these things. It wasn't a change; it was set in motion. So then, it was set in motion to a certain extent. But you can't really say that because then God is not able to perform miracles. So no, he did create it. So then same problem. Right. So, but again, I'm just telling you, Aristotle would say to you, what do you mean? He created Teva? If he created Teva, that's a deficiency in him as well. It means he needed to create something. And he can't create something because he's so perfect. So what I'm telling you is the rabbis are dealing with it. Indeed, he didn't change but he did create it. That's the catch-22 over here. That's what Harambam's going to need to contend with as well. The Midrash, a well-known one in source number three. God made a condition with the ocean, with the sea, rather, uh, in the moments of creation that it will split for Am Yisrael. Mm-hmm. The Midrash continues. Not only with the sea, and it goes on to mention all the miracles that were performed of the course of the Torahs, including Yehoshua, and it says, as God was creating them, he said to them, you're going to stop for Yehoshua, and you're going to open for the people, and so on and so forth. In other words, what they're doing, in a strange way, why should they be saying this? Why, why are the rabbis apologizing about the miracles? They're contending potentially with this sort of issue. God doesn't change, but at the same time, God did do this, so how do we contend with it? I'll tell you how it goes. He created it and embedded it with his will to happen at that point. All right, so Aristotle will again, I'm just repeating it one more time, just then question, what about the first action? What about the first tonight? Why'd he do that? That's, that's, an, that's an ungodly move. That's, that's the sort of issue we're gonna have to contend with from a philosophical perspective. Lastly, just to you know, qualify this sort of issue, 
Further, is just to mention again, I told you what Harambam counts this as one of his, he includes this as one of his ikarim. It's one of his principles of faith, those 13 that he enumerates before the last chapter of Masechet Sanhedrin. In source number six, it's only articulated well. Happens to be a person whose, whose writings, I heard many of his shiurim, I read a lot of his writings uh, after his death, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, who was a tremendous Jewish thinker. In source number six, in this book on the Ikarim, on those principles of faith, in his book Re'e Muna, a book the student published of his Torah, he, he kind of makes a point which only adds to this irony and difficulty. Um, and, and he points out the following. He says, listen, Arambam's counting these 14 principles of faith. Let's pay attention for a moment to the first one. He says, the first one is, I'm in source number six. There is an existent, existence, God, of course, um, with the full perfection of existence, he is the purpose, the source maybe of all of existence. And it's through him that the continued sustenance and existence of existence is about. And it's through God, so to speak, that existence is here, that anything exists, with for lack of a better way to keep saying the word existence. Now, that's the first principle. What's the difference between that principle and this principle? That principle is God is the source of all existence. This principle is God brought about existence. Says Rabbi Shapiro, there's, there's a basic difference over here. The basic difference or the basic addition is the following. The first one might be that God is the source of all existence, but he's compelled. Uh, you and I might say, I want to eat now. That's my decision. Not really your decision. You need to eat. Maybe you don't need to eat at this second. Maybe you don't need that. You're making your own cute decisions. But you need to eat. So you can say God is the source of all existence, but maybe there's a certain force in that. Maybe he needs to be the source of all existence. That's why Harambam needs to qualify that with this later ikar, this number four, in which he says, no, no, let me tell you further. God brought about anything that is. In other words, the claim is that Aristotle, by trying to uphold God's perfection, by saying that God can't change, ironically, diminishes in God's capabilities, right? Because it then says that God didn't have a choice. God was present with existence as it is eternally. You took away from God's capabilities. So Harambam, craftily then, in his fourth ikar, adds in, don't think that God doesn't have a decision in this. Don't think it's not his will. It absolutely is his will. Okay, when all the dust settles, just to summarize what we've set forth in somewhat of a, a clear fashion. So again, Harambam here in Helek Bet Perik Yod Gimal says, I'm going to deal with a small issue. No, just kidding. I'm going to deal with uh, creation. As I mentioned at the onset, from a scientific perspective, he doesn't have much to talk about any longer. For thousands of years, this was very significant. Anyone who's worth their salt in the scientific world would tell you, the world, of course, always existed. You silly Jews, you silly theologians think differently. Today's day and age, it's quite a, a different scene in the scientific world. But nonetheless, he sets forth three perspectives which philosophically are very significant. He says the first one is what we accept. What's that? Anyone who believes in Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu, Beri'ah, Yesh, Me'ayin, something from nothing. His second approach, he calls it the Plato approach. What's the Plato approach? It's not something from nothing. It's something from something. But that something which he made from something, he can do away with. He can't bring it to utter nothingness. 
and he couldn't bring about something from nothing, he dealt with something. What did it look like? What did it feel like? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Well, not know the answer to that, but there was something God couldn't do otherwise. Why not? Because that would be impossible. How do you know that would be impossible? Look at existence. Can you do away with matter? Can you bring about matter? You can't. And in turn, the same way God can't create, can't give himself a body and so forth, so too he couldn't do that. That's not a deficiency in God. It is limiting him. But so is saying that God can't create a square that doesn't have a, that, that, that has a slant, which is parallel to the sides in terms of size. That's the Platonic view. The Aristotelian view is not only did God not create something from something, something from nothing, it was something from something which he did very little to. Heavens cannot be altered by God. They were and will be a constant. So what does God do? He gives it different uh, coverings, different clothing. Sometimes he'll, uh, so every several, I don't know, thousand years, it changes in this respect or another way. Okay, that might be God's hand, but he doesn't actually change the very fabric of it. He can't, he wouldn't. Adam Bam concluded that conversation by giving you the force of such a claim. The same way God can't change himself, so too he couldn't and can't change existence. That's a very bold and strong statement. We pointed out that that view, the first part of it, that God can't change himself and wouldn't change himself, no such thing, is Hanumbam's view as well. Very much influenced by Aristotle, but a perspective on godliness, on the divinity. That is where Hanumbam's going to get a little stuck. If God can't change, if he's deficient by changing, then how did he bring forth change in creation? We suggested that's what the rabbis were grappling with by saying he doesn't perform miracles in the natural sense or in the natural sense we would imagine it by changing in the moment. He embedded it from the beginning. Somehow what they are doing and what Harambam is doing, with skipping our last point for now, is somehow saying there was one change. It's called creation. We're going to have to figure out how that happened, how that fits the mold of God. Spoiler alert, Harambam's going to say, we can't. He's going to say, I know it is, but we're not going to be able to really wrap our head around it. Spoiler alert. The same way he'll give a nice mashal in order to portray it to us. But again, that's the Aristotle claim against Tarambam, so to speak. It's if God doesn't change because of his perfection, then how could he bring about creation? Tarambam's response will be, and I'm using the rabbis again, he made the change then. How do you explain that? Hard to explain it. But any of the subsequent changes you should know are in some way embedded already. What does it mean embedded already? Hard to explain as well, but philosophically you can accept it. God doesn't change. I'll just leave off with this point in saying, this study, learning the words of Hanumbab and getting super philosophical and Aristotelian on this sort of matter, for some, understandably so, is a little jarring and a little difficult. I mentioned prayer earlier, but let me just describe relationship as well. Relationship we do, maybe rightfully assume, means there's two parties in this. There's some sort of emotional bond. This description in which God, and we can wrap our head around this description, doesn't get angry or happy and so forth, well, in turn, doesn't really change through a relationship. There isn't really an involvement. That's a very cold vision of a relationship with God. It, in turn, is a little jarring for many. Kuzari, for example, Rabbi Yudah Halevi, will have an altogether different vision, as we're used to already in terms of God's nature. The Torah, in turn, according to Harambam, all the dialogue, all the ins and outs, is all just for you and me to understand. None of that 
actually was like a connection in that respect from God, that's humanizing him. So I'm just saying there is a jarring, difficult to wrap your head around cold presence of God through this description. It again gives him more of a perfection and uh, a oneness and unique st stature and nature, but at the same time could, and I'm being very honest at, at the onset of these conversations, will leave us in the Harambam view with a certain difficulty in that respect, which we'll have to in some way or another grapple with in our own lives with regards to appreciating this, and at the same time understanding different approaches and our general psychology and psyche in life and in whatever it means to have, and we'll discuss hopefully a relationship with God. Baruch Adonai